Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 24th, 2019. This is episode 2537 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. Time for a listener call show. I have been alternating the listener call show with Just Jack shows because, well, I just want to cover a lot more topics and things like that. But I don't ever want to stop doing listener call show. It's really a great way to connect with the audience. So what I'm going to try to do today is I usually do about five calls. We'll do eight today, try to move a little quicker through it. Try to get this show done right around an hour, hour 15 uh, instead of going these two-hour shows that have happened lately. I've really this year made an effort to pull them back under an hour 30 and try to get some of them in an hour. and Because uh, that way you get more content quicker, that type of thing. I know some of you listen to this at like double speed. I don't know how you do that, but uh, uh, if you enjoy it that way, you enjoy it that way. All right, so here's what we're going to talk about today. This is what I've got lined up for you. Negotiating a raise when family's in the chain of command. This one is a little complex, but I'm going to tell you that it's not really that much different than always. Uh, next, dealing... Uh, with droughts, and do, does the drought actually present any sort of opportunity? And then something called the Kratky Hydroponics Method. You, sir, who have who've asked me this question, you are a jerk. And I mean that the way that people mean it when they say it about me. It's a good way, but you're still a jerk, and I'll explain when I get there. Uh, damn it. Uh, a couple authors to check out on the subject of voluntarism. Uh, more on my migration to nut trees and past failure with fruit trees. The real danger of everybody knows thinking. The concept of the premier defense rifle and solutions looking for problems and using seaweed as a compost and garden amendment. We'll talk about all of that more in just a bit. Let's start off with a quote of the day. Um, this is a recycled quote of the day because I screwed it up this week. Uh, Wednesday... Uh, I'm sorry, Thursday, Tuesday, yeah, did you see how this week's been? Yeah, I don't even know what day it is. It's Thursday, right? So Tuesday was a, a, a complex day. And uh, then Wednesday, when I was supposed to fix this with Gary Collins' interview yesterday, I was going to do this quote, I forgot. Uh, that interview you guys heard yesterday involves me um, doing 30 minutes of an interview and having a systems failure and having to redo the first half of the interview. So... I also had to pull the ducks out of the floor, baby ducks out of the floor of the duck house yesterday. I'll tell you about that more tomorrow. So just say it was a rambunctious week. Uh, yep, baby ducks in the floor. I'll tell you the story tomorrow. Anyway, so when I did the show on gardening, I was like, I want a garden quote. And I thought, you know what? I know a great gardening quote. And it turns out it's almost impossible to figure out where it originally came from. And I don't think it actually comes from where it sounds like it comes from. Uh, there's a story that this quote comes from, but the quote itself is, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And the story is that a, a young apprentice in samurai world or something like that tells his master, you teach me to fight and you teach me to garden. And why do we do both? And that's what the master says. It's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. I actually think this is a modern quote that somebody made and somebody twisted and somebody changed and we just kind of lost who did it. I don't know that... I bet there is a story somewhere that the concept comes from in, in, in Taoism or Confucianism or something like that, but uh, or maybe something in the art of war. I don't really 
remember anything from Sun Tzu's work that specifically says this, but you know, some way it could be gleaned out of there. But I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. There's one of those quotes by Unknown, and we don't know who Unknown is, but he writes some awesome shit. Um, this, to me, is something that's really a great way to think about life in general. Life in general. And here's what I mean by that. There are people that what they do is some fighting art or martial art or pounding weights or CrossFit. I mean, when I say that's what they do, I mean, that's what they do. That's what When Gary and I were talking about fitness yesterday, I was saying, you know, That's what I was talking about. People that like they dedicate themselves to this one thing, and that's their only thing. And the issue with that is, and I've talked about the concept of being a warrior before, as great as it is, and as important as it is, hopefully you don't have to use it very often. And gardening is, in this quote to me, much more a metaphor for all the other things that you do to actually provide for yourself and others in your life beyond being able to use violence. Everything but the violence. And that it's probably more important that we put more effort into all those other things than just the ability to use violence. But we don't turn away from the violence because other people don't turn away from violence and someday you may need to defend yourself or others. And whether that war is what we think of as a war, like you see on TV, or a war for your life or someone else's life that's happening in just an instant, and it's over in just an instant, and at the end of it, you're either alive or you're not, and the people you're trying to defend are either alive or they're not. Just because we focus more on everything else doesn't mean we can ignore the need to be able to be a warrior when called upon. That's my thought on that quote, which is, again, a very famous quote. With that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hello, I have a question for Jack. My name is uh, James. I'm from Illinois. been listening to you for over two years. I've been a MSB member for one and a half years, and this is my first time calling in with a question. The question that I have is, how do you ask for a promotion when you work for your father? Details. My father is the sole owner of a manufacturer rep agency. He is not one to hire family because they are family. I earned the position. I've been employed for 11 years. Started out at as, uh, an entry-level admin position, and I've been in sales development for the last seven years, uh, of which was my last promotion that I had. Uh, since then, I've received basically a uh, 3% raise every year. Uh, currently, I report to someone else. Uh, me and this person do not get along well. Uh, he has constantly micromanaged me and dismissed all sales ideas I have had. Because of this, I have started my own initiatives in sales to help grow the business, of which all of these ideas have been very well received by my father. I know you've addressed this subject in the past, but thought you might have a different take on my particular situation. Thank you for everything that you do, Jack, and taking the time to answer my question. Have a great day. Uh, so when I was listening to this, and the first thing, you, when you said the person you work for is not your dad, I thought, great. And then you talked about the issues you had with this person, and I thought, damn it, now it's all complicated again. Because if it, if it, if it was the case that you worked for someone else, and in general y'all got along and he respected you, my response to this would be, 
it doesn't matter that your dad owns a company. Screw it. You need to you know deal with your boss and say you know I need advancement, more money, whatever. However, we, and we'll talk about how to formulate that here in a second. But I wouldn't even have worried about. The, I wouldn't have cared. Um, if you had this guy in the company and the guy above him or the guy above the guy above him one way or another wasn't your dad, then it's actually pretty simple. So either way is simple. Now when we have somebody in between you, you have a father that all, you know, great, I'm glad. He's like totally opposed to nepotism. Um, and then you got a boss you don't get along with. This is all multiple problems. And we got to think about how to deal with this. But let's talk about the general concept here. So you're in a sales position, okay? Then I, I personally think that if you want more money, then you need to be able to provide, and this doesn't have anything to do with your individual situation. You're in a position that involves sales. Sales create measurable metrics that are the lifeblood of a company that result in the direct revenue that pay all the company's bills and make the company successful. Um, sales development, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. These may be programs that Salesforce uses. This may be uh, more of an inside sales. If you know, manufacturer rep, that's something I'm very, very familiar with. I used to manage uh, over 30 manufacturers' representatives in a, as, 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 as a regional manager uh, for a manufacturer. So I, I get the business space. But when somebody says something like sales development, that can mean so many different things. So whether this is putting together programs, you might be working with distributors. I don't know, but there should be some way to quantify the results of your program. And if there isn't a way to quantify the results from your program, you need to develop one. And then you need to be able to say, this is the revenue I'm responsible for. And with this increase in revenue, I would either like a significant raise, which is not 3%, or I would like an incentive-based compensation program that will continue to monitor what I'm doing and pay me commensurate with the revenue that I generate for the company. This is a, a way of positioning things where it's very difficult for the person to say no. Because you're offering them two things. One, we're going to talk about a significant increase in my responsibilities and the money I make. Or we're going to put a metric on what I'm already doing and we're going to pay me based on my performance. See, with, if, if it's either one, it's, it's you know, the first one we can say no to, sort of, maybe. The second one's really hard to say no to. When you put an or between them, it's really complicated. So that's something that, like, without knowing the specifics, I don't know exactly how I would formulate that, but what I would say, see, because there's, there's a word, there's some terminology here that worries me a little bit. These, these programs that I've done on my own, well, I like that. I love that. I love doing shit on your own. Just screw it. Don't ask permission. I never ask permission in, in business. I act. It, it's much easier to gain forgiveness than permission. So, you've done that. They're well received. Well received and effective are not the same thing. So how effective are they? How well have they worked? Now, odds are, since your dad seems like a nuts and bolts money guy, they probably work pretty damn good, or he would not be. They would not be well received. Are they ideas, or are they implemented procedures? Because this is, I want to take it a little bit different. It's a little bit more broad about how you deal with a situation like this. My general way that I would approach a situation like this is number one, I would build for myself an exit strategy. If this doesn't pay off, I know where I'm going. You have a skill set, you have a track record, and you're in an industry that... See, the thing about working in sales development for a manufacturer's rep, it doesn't matter what the product is. The job's the same for everything. Whether it's a sales channel for friggin' infant bottle parts, 
or telecommunications equipment or electronics, it all works the same way. So even if you're stranded with an NDA, the NDA cannot prevent you from going out and pursuing the only skill set you have. You can only be so tight with an NDA. So simply by moving to someone that's not a direct competitor, um, even if they're a competitor, as long as they're not a direct competitor, an NDA is almost impossible to enforce. Right, And then the reasons you leave also have a lot to do with how enforceable an NDA is, but we won't get into that. So I would, I would start talking to some people on the down low about your marketability so that you have a clue how marketable you really are. Right, And I, so I would start kind of figuring out at least what's my market value. Because you're probably being paid under it. And, and it's not because you're somebody's son. When you work a job that long without moving up in that job, you generally end up being paid under your market rate. My son's dealing with this right now, and he just won't get the stones to do what I'm about to tell you to do. Um, so once you determine what that is and determine, if I really had to, I could go do this somewhere else and make at least this much money, then that becomes a number. See, I don't like usually in most situations, I don't like to name a number first. Because whoever names a number first usually loses. But let's say that number is $100,000. Let's say it's $80,000. It doesn't matter. I don't want to give you a number because it doesn't matter because I don't know what your number is. But it's, it's, it's probably significantly more. It's not 3%. You know, it's adding 20 grand to your, your annual salary is what it is. Uh, or it's incentive-based. And the conversation needs to go like, I've been here this long. Here's how I've quantified my efforts. Not I showed up, I do good, blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit about none of that. I can replace that. Well, you can say, like, these. this is the sales numbers. This is what we can see as a direct result of my programs. This is how this works, et cetera. And I've taken a look at what's going on in, in the marketplace, which is a nice way of saying I've checked out. I'm not leaving, but I've checked out what's out there. And I think that if someone doing what I'm doing for as long as I'm doing um, needs to be in the range of fill in the blank with the number, which is going to be a, a sticker shock number because you're asking for a lot, but you need to because you're never going to get what you ask for, right? Um, and so what I think we need to do is we need to talk about either how we get to that number, or if you tell me you can't do that number, then I need to know what you need from me so that we can get there. What is it, because I've checked, and kind of, this is kind of a market rate in our sector and area, and um, this is what you know somebody coming into a position like this would cost you. That, that's a really interesting way. Instead of what it's worth, this is what it would cost you to hire someone with my level and abilities right now. So since that's the case, is it a, do we not have enough revenue? Uh, is there an objection to paying me that way? Because, well, then maybe I won't work as hard anymore. So can we look more at the incentive side of the compensation package? But how do we get there? Because the truth is, this is what I believe that I'm worth. And I need to know how we get there. And then shut up. Now, this takes stones. It does to be able to do this. But it is the best way to put yourself out there. Because what you're saying is, okay, if it, this is what I think I, I want to be making. I'm open to other ways to get to that level of income. And if you tell me what I'm doing is not enough to get there, then I need you to tell me what is. What do you need me to do that I'm not doing for you? What do you need me to give you that I'm not giving you? Now, one thing that worries me a little bit is you should be on heavily incentive-based compensation. In any manufacturer rep firm, unless you're like an administrative person or something like that, 
you should be directly tied to your results. And this is why the majority of people that worked for me that were principals, owners in the manufacturing firms I managed, started out as employees who eventually bought part of the firm or bought the ownership out of the firm. That they made so much money that between their track record, their knowledge, their cash reserves that they built up for themselves, and being able to go to the bank with an existing business plan to finance whatever they need, they were able to actually buy out the founders. In some cases, maybe it was three or four generations had been bought out by employees. And so I know that's my particular niche that was a very high-end niche with high-end computing equipment, but that is the kind of progression that normally happens. So I'm a little concerned with how good are you? And only you can answer that. You may be amazing. You may not be. But if you want to make more money in an environment where the name of the game is sales, you need to have a compensation plan that is directly tied to the results that you produce. And anybody that says they're in sales, but, well, you can't really quantify that because I'm at an upper low. No, that's not. If you think that way, you are never going to get more money. You need to figure out how to quantify what you're generating. And then you either need to figure out how to, how to, how to get money because of that, or move to a compensation package that maximizes that and then do more of it, if that makes sense. And the fact that your dad's in the chain, I would try to avoid that at all costs. When you talk to him about it, I'd pretend he's not your dad. And when you talk to your boss, I'd pretend that you're the guy that he works for is not your dad. And I would never bring it up, and I would never talk about it. That That's how I'd handle it. That's pretty long for one. I'm trying to keep the show short. Let's move on to another one. Hey, Jack. Long-term MSB member here, Dave from Kentucky. Uh, we're experiencing a really odd weather pattern where we're in nearly bad drought conditions for a place that is normally very rainy and always green and everything like that. My question is, what can I do? Can I take advantage of this drought in one way or another? So far, I've, you know, mowed further into, you know, swampy areas and things like that. But is there anything I should be doing to take advantage of this uh, opportunity? You might call it that way when I'm not out trying to water my trees. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. So, I mean, I don't know. I, it may be that you and I have different versions of a drought. A drought here is where everything starts dying really bad, like we had this year, like we had last year, like we had the year before, like we seem to have every year. We have a deluge of flood in the spring and then a drought all summer long, and that's part of why we're going to talk about my tree changes here in a little bit. Uh, when you couple that with a rocky environment, rock slab environment, so I, I don't have a lot of good, warm, fuzzy feelings for droughts. However, you kind of talked about you're heading in the right direction, I think, mowing more into swampy areas. I'm guessing you have some low-lying areas on your land that tend to stay wet. Maybe you can do more brush clearing and things like that and it kind of expand the open spaces and stuff. Uh, kind of following that vein of thinking, the two things that I can think of that make a lot of sense to do when it's really dry are construction and earthworks. You know, when you build ponds, you're doing it so you can hold water. But the thing you don't want is rain while you're doing it. You want it as dry as possible while you're building a pond. And then as soon as it's done, like, cause this is what building a pond's like. Ask me how I know. 
Don't rain, don't rain, don't rain, don't rain. Compaction keyway, don't rain, don't rain. Dig, dig, don't rain. Okay, let's expand a little catchment swale there. Don't rain, don't rain. Oh, we're done. Rain, please rain. Ah, you start doing the Indian ah, rain dance, right? Like, you want rain the second you're done. And it usually doesn't come, but you don't want rain until the second you're done. Swales, not as much, but yes. Like So if you want to do any earthworks, put in any ponds or dams, this would be a good time to do it. And if, if, this, if this larger pattern, if this micro pattern, which is this year you've had more droughty weather than, than you typically do, if it becomes a macro pattern, if there is a, a shift in the dry line in your area, which is something we're experiencing here right now, um, that's long-term, You know, swales and ponds are a good way to get through the drought. So you use the drought to prepare for the next drought. That, that's all I got. I don't really have anything else because it's definitely not a good time for planting. It's a good time for clearing. It's not a good time to burn slash, which, you know, so when you clear, you end up with a lot of slash. Um But, yeah, definitely it's a good time for clearing, construction, and earthworks. That's, that's all I got. If anybody else has any ideas of turning drought into opportunity, please comment in the show notes or shoot me an email. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Roger McDowell from Central Kentucky. Um, I was looking at some YouTubes the other day and saw uh, the Kratky method of hydroponics. Looks very simple and straightforward, easy uh, for a new beginner to get their feet wet doing hydroponics. Just wondered if uh, you might make a comment about that or maybe even do a show on the Kratky method. Um, I think that would be pretty cool. Uh, I'd, I'd eventually like to get into aquaponics, but uh, just want to ease my way in, and I thought this would be a good way to do it, and it may be pretty simple and straightforward for most people to get their, uh, their first uh, hydroponics uh, type of growing in. So, Uh, either comment or maybe you can plan a show on this uh, method to enlighten us and help us to understand it better and how it fits in the, uh, the scheme of hydroponics, aquaponics, that type of thing. Thanks, Jack. Bye. As I said in my intro, you, sir, are a jerk. I finally get to say that to one of y'all after hearing it like hundreds of times to me. All right, so let me tell you why you're a jerk because this is awesome. And I don't need another thing to do right now. So let me try to explain. I got two great videos that do a really good job of explaining this. And I want to throw out, I, I do this once in a while, I'm going to throw out another reminder here. If you call me specifically, if you write me, it's not an issue. But if you call me and you talk about a company name or a technique name or something like that, that isn't abundantly clear in how it's spelled. This one, it ended up, I was completely wrong about what he said. But I was able to quickly find it because there's not a lot of different versions of aquaponics out there, right? So it's Kratky. And it sounded like he said Kripke or Kritke or something. Like I was thinking like the, the guy from Big Bang Theory, the guy with the list, like his name, something like that. Kripke. It's Krak. It's Kratky. K-R-A-T-K-Y. Kratky method. So if you ever call in with a method or a term or... You know, uh, something that's like, uh, you know, uh, an anacronym or anything like that, please spell it for me. Because even though this time it took me like 
30 seconds to get it spelled right and figure out what it was. Sometimes it's, it's really hard. And I've had it one time anyway where somebody gave me an, an acronym and I, I completely blew the answer because I was talking about something different. So just do that for me. So what is, what is crack key hydroponics? It is the simplest form of hydroponics known to man. It is stupid simple. And it seems like it works really, really good. So let's talk about what hydroponics is in general. We use water and nutrient and maybe some form of media. Because sometimes it's just water. Sometimes it's like uh, expanded shale or it's uh, you know, the leka, which is basically the little marble-looking clay marbles or uh, volcanic rock or something like that, volcano rock. Um, and then we... Do something to move the water in general. And the reason we do this is roots need oxygen. So most plants that we grow for food will not grow well if their roots are just in water and that water just sits there and the water stagnates. And Because what happens is the roots can only take so much oxygen out of that water and if we're not putting more oxygen in the water, then the roots get unhappy, the whole plant gets unhappy and doesn't grow well. So if we just take a lettuce plant and stick it in a jar of water... Uh, eventually it will stop growing well for us and it will look like crap and we won't be happy, even if we have all the nutrients we need. So the two primary ways that they take care of this with hydroponics, which is, again, no fish involved like aquaponics, is we either move the water or we aerate the water. So one thing we can do is we take our, we use like Rubbermaid tubs is a classic one people do, cut some holes in the lid, fill it up with the media, add water to it, And then each tub has a line from a, an air pump going to it, and we blow air into it, just like we do in a fish tank. And the plants grow really good. But now we have another system, and we have an energy requirement. We're drawing electricity, and if the power goes off, everything starts to get... And then we also have to plumb water to that system, or we have to add water daily or something. We have another moving part, so to say, that has to be you know, kept up regularly because if the water level drops too much, plants don't have enough water, what have you. Now, the other way we do this is we move the water instead of directly aerating the water. So we have the water in some sort of container, and we have a plant with like a net cup growing in there, and that water pumps out of that container to some higher elevation, and gravity brings it back. What, what does that do? That you know, Maybe it's going through some grow pipes or something and growing like strawberry towers or whatever. But moving the water, the main reason we move the water is because we want to put oxygen in it. Now, if we're doing aquaponics and we got fish living in there, we have no choice. We have got to move that water somehow because the fish require oxygen in the water. Well, the plants don't require oxygen in the water. They require oxygen for the roots. It doesn't have to be in the water. So what is crack key? Crack key is we take that Rubbermaid tub, for instance, we add some media to it, we fill it with water, or maybe it's just filled with water. There's no media at all. We cut out nine holes, and each hole gets a three-inch net pot, and each hole gets a little bitty lettuce plant. Maybe it's sitting in rock wool or something, and it sits up there. We fill it right to the top, and then what do we? And we make sure we mix the right amount of fertilization. So we use hydroponics fertilizer of some sort. Stick it in there. Get one of those things for mixing up mortar on your drill. Mix it up. Put the lid on. You know what we do next? Not a damn thing. That's it. That's the whole thing. You don't do shit. What's the magic? What happens to the water? The plant uses it, and even though it's covered, some level of it evaporates. As the plant starts to put down its roots, the water level goes 
down. So the roots get more aggressive and they keep chasing the water. And as long as some of the roots are in the water, they can pull water up to the plant. The roots get bigger and bigger and bigger, and since the container's covered, all the roots that are not in the water, they stay nice and moist. It's humid in there, very humid. But there's air, and the plant can get all the air to its roots that it needs because an air gap forms. And that's it. That's the whole thing. There's nothing else. And damn it. And this this is hitting me because there's a couple things going on here. One, this looks like a really cool way to do things. And you know me and really cool ways to do things that make life simpler. Okay, This uses no energy. I guess it could be done indoors with lights. But if you have like a low-E window, you could do it indoors in a window. It could be done in a greenhouse. It could be done on a porch. It uses no electricity if you have light from the sun. It uses no moving parts. And talk about cheap. You can basically get a $7 Rubbermaid tub, and if you do it without media, a dollar's worth of friggin' net pots and you know five bucks worth of fertilizer, and you're good for a long time. I like that. Now... I've, been, I've talked to you guys about some of the plans I have for the winter, and one is I'm gutting all the aquaponics out of my greenhouse. And my plan has been to put another aquaponics system back in there, a completely redesigned one in a different situation. I'm also putting, I'll give away part of it, I'm really not going to explain the whole thing in, until after the workshop, because the workshop people get to see exactly what I'm going to do first. I'm going to put basically some ponds in my aviary. Low in the ground, at least the, maybe it's going to be two, one overflowing to another. And the lowest one, I'm going to build up things so that things like frogs can get in and out. I'll just leave it at that for now about what's going on in there. That gives me an opportunity with one little pump to maybe throw in a, a grow pipe or something and do some aquaponics in there. Well, I got that aquaponics system. I got a 300-gallon aquaponics system. I got enough aquaponics. Right? I don't need another pump, but I was like, it's so obvious that it makes sense to put an aquaponics system in the greenhouse. But I started looking at a 12 by 12 greenhouse, and I'm like, if I don't think of any space with tanks and pumps and shit like that, and I insulate this thing and redo it the way I want to, you know, I could put a citrus tree in there in the winter, and I you know, make it it'd be wide open and start plants, and it, it'd be, you know, maybe I don't need aquaponics in there. I'm not sold on this yet, but now I'm thinking, you know, if I put a couple tubs in there and did this thing, if I ever decide I want to put aquaponics back in there, it's easy. It's a weekend project, and it's done the way I wanted to do it in the first place. Once I put it in, taking it out, it's a little different, isn't it? So maybe this winter, in my greenhouse, I'm going to use this crack key method. Damn it, sir, you are a jerk. Because one way or another, I'm doing this because it's too easy not to. Now, my one concern, long-duration plants. And they say to start with you know leafy plants, kale, lettuce, spinach, etc. Long-duration plants. If you were going to do peppers or tomatoes with this, I think you have to get to a point where you would have to plumb in something with a float valve. But what I think you would do then, and this would be really easy because you could run off your well pump or your your, your city water pump or whatever, um, you would just put the float valve really, really low. Like you decide like 20% 
is the, the maintenance amount of water. You know, like if you have a five-gallon bucket, one gallon of water, that you don't ever want to go below that if you're growing something that's long duration, like a tomato plant or like a cucumber or something like that. And so you then you would just fill your bucket up, and your float valve would be closed. And when it got all the way down to there, it would self-fill. Or once you got to a certain point, you could manually top it off. I don't like the manual top off. And the reason I don't like the manual top off, it has a real propensity for you to overfill. The other way you could do it, though, and this is like, I was just trying to think of different ways you could do it. You pop in a valve. So instead of putting, like, when we do, like, um, a wicking bed or, like, a grow bucket system where you have one bucket and the other self-watering containers, what we always do, we put a, put a, a hole in the, the water-containing bucket so that if it rains or if we overfill it, once it gets there, it drains back down and stays at that level. So what you could do if you wanted to do it with no moving parts, but when you got to this point, you would have to have a schedule. One, maybe once a week, you, you, you fill it back up, right? What you do is you put a valve in there and you close it. And when your plant gets nice and big and the roots are all the way to the bottom, you open the valve and it drains. And then once a week, you fill it up until it starts coming out the valve again. That would be another way to do it. Anyway... You, sir, are a jerk. You've given me another project, and I hope the entire audience benefits from it. Uh, sir, you remember what jerk means. That's the reason I take it in stride. Jerk means just encouraging real knowledge. Thank you for that call. Thank you for being a jerk. Hey, Jack. I've been listening for a while, and I'm wondering if you have read The Making of a Radical, a political autobiography by Scott Nearing. I'm also wondering if you've ever read Emma Goldman's autobiography, um, and in each case, if you have, I'm curious your thoughts on each of those persons. Uh, I found them really inspiring and related with both anarchism, voluntarist, and living a simple good life. Thanks so much for all you do. Cheers. Well, the, the first book I've heard of, and the second book and the second author I've never even heard of, I've not read either one of them, so I can't comment on them. I played this call mainly because maybe that's something some of y'all out there want to want to look up and read. Maybe I'll check into it. But I also kind of wanted to talk about like how this actually relates to the quote of the day. It is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. See, I really see that as a call to be a polymath. right? A polymath is someone that is skilled in multiple disciplines. And if we're going to be skilled in multiple disciplines, if we're going to be a jack-of-all-trades and a master of some, and paraphrasing Benjamin Franklin, then we can only take so much time in any given discipline. So that's why, you know, I've learned a lot of different ways to defend myself over the years, but I'm not a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu or taekwondo or anything like that because, well, that requires a dedication to time that would have to take me away from other things. When it comes to anarcho and voluntarist philosophy and thinking, I've, I feel like I've kind of evolved to this point. Some people might find this to be arrogant or maybe instead of arrogant, oversimplifying, but it works for me. And that is I've gotten to the point where I look at my stance as an anarchist, as a voluntarist, as an agorist, is a very simple stance based on a very simple morality. And my morality is that I have no right to take anything from you under any circumstances. Further, I have no right 
to use any form of force or violence on you at all, infinity, unless you are trying to harm me or harm some other innocent person. In other words, I believe that it is fundamentally wrong for me to hurt you or take your stuff. That's it. That's the whole thing. Okay? Now, because I believe that about myself, and I think that's where this whole philosophy has to come. It has to be a self-centered philosophy. We have to stop thinking self-centered is a bad thing. Self-centered means it comes from me. It doesn't mean that nobody else exists. We'll start here at me. I'll center on myself and what I have a right to do. And then that's a reflection of what the rest of the world has a right to do. I think we'd be better off if people thought that way. So I have no right to hurt you or take your stuff. Okay, then the entire concept that we have a democratic system where I elect people to hurt you or take your stuff is immoral. It is an immoral stance to believe that I can give you the right to do something on my behalf that I do not have the right to do. Let's look at it a different way. I think that almost everybody that listens to this, unless you're some nut job communist, would say, Jack Spirico has a right to live in his house. He bought the house. He earned the money that pays for the house. He has a right to live in his house. Additionally, Jack Spirico has the right to rent his house to somebody else and live elsewhere and make an income off of it. Okay? So... If, if that's the case, then if you want to be my property manager and I say I will delegate to you the authority to oversee who lives in the house, collect their rent, etc. under these terms, whatever they are, you get to keep 10%, whatever it is, then I've delegated a right that I have to control who occupies the structure that I own. And I have a right to delegate that. I can delegate that right. Because I obtained that right legitimately in the first place. Make sense? Okay, I do not have a right to go across the street to my neighbors, throw them out of their house, take over their house, and then rent it to, back to them or to somebody else. I don't have that right. So I can't delegate you as my property manager and say, well, you know, we had an election, and you're now a real estate overlord for Tarrant County, uh, do as you see fit, and then you go throw those people out of the house. And I say, well, I voted for them. It's okay. They're elected. And every single thing the state does is based on the ability to use force to steal. Therefore, I am an anarchist because it's the only moral position that I can take based on my morality. Now, you can argue with me that you think I'm wrong, okay, about my overall view. And it won't work and whatever. And let's put that on the shelf for a second. Let me explain what I mean one more time so that we understand each other. I believe fundamentally from my core that taking anything from anybody against their will that they rightfully acquired is wrong. And I believe that using force and violence on someone who is not harming anybody else is fundamentally wrong. I believe that. Right? If you believe in God, you no more believe in your version of God than I believe in that principle. For me, not for you, for me, the only moral stance is anarchy. It's, my own, it's the only choice I have if I'm going to be consistent with my moral beliefs. I don't need to read a very long book about anarchy to come to that realization. 
I think it helps a lot of people come to that realization, and I think they should read it. And I'm not opposed to reading these things. But I have so many hours in a day, I have to investigate hundreds of things a month just to do this show, plus the things that I care about individually for myself, plus take care of my garden, take care of my dogs, take care of my wife, take care of my grandchildren, advise my son, take care of my fish tanks, maintain my home. Like So I only have so many things to do. So I think sometimes people are like shocked, like, well, you haven't read uh, Atlas Shrugged? No, don't need to. Watch the movie. It was pretty decent. It was okay. I get the point. I get the point. But like, it's almost like a rite of passage. You have to. Like, no, I, it's really long. Try to listen to the audiobook. It really didn't do it for me, honestly. And maybe because there was nothing to discover. Because you're telling me a story in order to lead me to a conclusion I've already drawn, I guess. I don't know. It's funny because when I first started this show, I was accused by... I, I don't know. We, we seem like the loons have left. I don't extract loons anymore. Very many of them, anyway. But I would have leftists that would show up. I don't know what they thought they were going to find. But then they would like accuse me of being... Um, an Ayn Rand disciple. And all I was doing was parodying Atlas Shrugged. And I'm like, I don't know if you've read this book, but I didn't. So I can't parrot that which I have not heard. right? And it was just that the philosophy is so similar. Uh, Paul Wheaton bothered the shit out of me for like six months trying to get me to read Fountainhead. I'm like, will you leave me alone? He's like, but you are... Like, you're telling me things I already know. So I'm not putting down this question at all. Don't see it though. I'm just kind of pointing out that like, in the end, we all have to decide which of our interests we take further. And I think one of the one of the things I've seen in some of my fellow members of the liberty movement in them becoming illogically radical. Radical is great if it's logically radical. I mean illogically radical. I'm talking about the people that you know all cops are scumbags that beat their wives. You know who you are that think that way. Um, and then they get completely wrapped up in this. Instead of saying, this is my only moral stance I can come up with, a moral superiority. You notice that I said, this is the only moral stance I can come up, I can have, based on my belief. I didn't say my stance was morally superior to yours. I didn't say your stance, if you disagree with me, is immoral. I said, for me, any other stance would be immoral for me, because it would be in conflict with my own morality. And what happens when people become complete bookworms into libertarianism, etc., and they become completely engrossed in being an intellectual in this space. They become specialized, and specialization, as the quote says, is for insects. And they lose sight of the reality of everything else around. So that's not a reason not to read what these two people have to say. But it is a reason that if you're reading anything, whether it's a ketogenic diet, whether it's permaculture, whether it's libertarianism, whether it's classic liberalism, whether it is anarchy, whether it is tropical fish, whether, no matter what it is, to stay broad. And if you get into something to a point where you're starting to feel like I could have written this, just pick something else to read or listen to. And that's why I've tried to make this show so diverse. Today, look what we're covering. We're covering droughts. We're covering your career, we're covering hydroponics, we're covering voluntarism, we're covering trees in a second here, we're going to talk about what everybody knows, we're going to talk about guns. Like, I don't want to be in a position where this thing that I do is typecast, and so I didn't really have anything to talk about with the authors, so I just thought maybe it would springboard that conversation. And again, I, I don't want that to read as, Jackson's not to read these books, I think it would be great 
to read those books if you want to read more about that. And I might pick one of these as the next audiobook I listen to. Just because when stuff shows up, I believe the universe has a, a place, has done, there, there's a reason this showed up. And maybe it's worth checking out. Anyway, let's take another one. Uh, this one on trees. Good morning, Jack. I was listening to uh, the podcast, and you said you were going to shift away from fruit trees that haven't worked for you and shift more towards pecans. Jack, I watched the first uh, episodes where you're planting the food for us. Do you have a list of trees that did work for you? I know watching the videos, there was a low-chill sweet cherry, either Mini Royal or Royal Lee, that you filmed on the YouTube channel that had failed. But just interesting if there was a list available of things that had succeeded for you. I'm new to Central Texas myself. And uh, my local nurseries are not very helpful. When I ask them about particular trees, they just tell me that doesn't grow here, and they don't tell me why. And uh, being a retired nurseman, I kind of... Anyway, if there was a list available, very helpful. Thank you very much. Appreciate everything you do. Have a great day. So here's the thing. Like, 80% of what I planted is alive right now. It's living. What it's not doing is producing, and there's multiple reasons for this. One of the reasons is the shallow soil here, and the tree's not being able to get deep. You think it's a water problem, and it is. It's not the only problem, though. The other problem is we get you know really strange weather compared to anywhere else in the country on this border between like zone 7 and zone 8. And I think it's pretty much throughout the whole Mid-South that you get this kind of thing where We get really, really warm days before we get past not having freezes. I don't mean like the kind of the Indian summer we used to, we called it in Pennsylvania, where like the week between Christmas and New Year's, it would be up in the 50s and 60s and nice out, everybody would be on a t shirt. I don't mean that. I mean like 89, 94 degree days happen in, you know mid-March, and two weeks later, we might get a smattering of snow and a low of 15 degrees. When you take that and you give a tree 4 to 12 inches of soil maximum, and the most soil I have anywhere on this property is 12 inches to grow in, that ground warms up really, really fast, and I have trees that put on blossoms really, really early and then get hit with a frost. That's one of my many challenges here. Um, then we get deluge rain from about now until spring, and then we get a drought every year, like we talked about earlier. Those two things together mean that I don't get a lot of fruit production. Additionally, I've moved more toward a keto-style diet, and my long-term goals for the property have changed. And I also have gotten to the point where I can either do a lot of work so that all these fruit trees will do better. Or I can come up with a way to do less work and get really big trees that make my my property more forest-like. I like the second option. I like the second option. There will always be fruit trees here, and I'm going to get to what survive, you know, what does okay and what doesn't in just a second. But going to more of a nut over story, and I'm going to be putting some oaks in too. Um, and moving more toward a savanna pasture model, which is what I always really wanted anyway, I think just makes sense. What I'm also looking at is, you know, a, a, a peach tree, a plum tree, an apple tree, um, of all the cultivars that we want to grow, is only ever going to be so big. 
where a pecan is, is a tree that exists to grow in alkaline, rocky soils and will send lateral root. If it can't make a taproot, it will send lateral roots out as far as its canopy and then some. It will do what needs to be done to live. It's a survivor. So it's an easier tree to grow. But it gets big. So I can take five pecans and create the, the canopy coverage that I would get out of 20 or 30 plums and apricots. So it's just easier to get more of what I need, which on this property has always been shade. It's good for the animals. It's good for the soil. It's good for everything. It also is the case that these are all deciduous, giant deciduous trees that gives me lots of leaf drop, which I need to continue to build soil. So I am making this decision more because going to a nut canopy is better for my property than because the fruit trees are unhappy, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, now, what has done best for me? Pears, plums, peaches. I can't give you individual species and stuff like that because it doesn't really matter because this one was just in a more miserable place than that one. So they were two different varieties, and this peach did better. Peaches, <laughs> plums, uh, and pears. Apples are actually... Apples deal with the drought really, really good. Um, they're just not been uber productive yet. I have some apples that I think are going to be long-term, very productive trees. Again, there will always be fruit here, but that's, that's kind of the lesson learned here. But what I'm wanting to do is move to bigger, faster-growing, more canopy-oriented trees that are high-density uh, production. I am moving more toward, and I've been doing this over the last couple of years, annual production has come back into my life, and I'm doing way more with annuals, and I've moved toward a high-vegetarian, high high-plant-based diet that's based on low-carbohydrate vegetables. And I can grow the shit out of that. So that's, and I'm also, you know, I'm getting older. I'm almost 50, and I'm going to continue to get older, and I'm trying to move my systems toward low-maintenance systems. If Now, I'm going to say this. If this property was 20 miles to my south, south by southeast, somewhere in that range, where it was deep clay soil with underlying sandy loam, by now... With what I would have done, I would have almost no work, and you would, this time of year, you'd probably be walking around smelling rotting fruit. The volume of fruit that I would have with the exact system I built, if we just didn't live on a freaking limestone slab, would be stupid. And what I did when we came here is accept that limitation and said, I'm going to see what happens if I try to do it anyway. So the, my big thing is, if there's a pecan tree going in in the spring, by spring, when I take that tree and plant it, There will be a sprinkler sitting right next to it, and those trees will never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, never experience the stress of a drought. That is that is what I'm going to do. So if I want to do that, I can either put in two more wells to have enough volume of water to irrigate the whole damn property, or I can reduce the number of points that I need to irrigate. And that's what I'm going to do. And anybody can say, well, you don't need irrigation, but you don't live here. Shut up, you don't live here. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't live here. Shut up. Okay. When you have trees that are 20-year-old trees, native trees, in forest, not in the middle of a field, die because of the droughts we've had, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Shut up and shut up again. Shut your face. 
turn around and shut up again. I mean, people that say that, you don't live here. If you want to grow consistent, productive trees on my three acres of rock, you must, must, must irrigate, at least seasonally. I don't have to irrigate year-round. But from about late May until about right now, there needs to be regular irrigation if you're going to have success. And it's much easier for me to irrigate a smaller number of trees. Hope that makes sense. Let's take another one. And those of you that say I don't need irrigation again, shut up. Hey, Jack. It's Tactical Redneck. Calling in response to your $100 challenge. And no, I'm not trying to claim the money. I have better things to do with my time than scour the Internet trying to find a mythological study that doesn't exist. But it keeps saying that everybody knows meat and fats and bacon are bad for you. Yeah, well, everybody knows that at the end of every rainbow, there's a leprechaun guarding a pot of gold. Everybody knows, but everybody doesn't believe you. Anyway, thanks, thanks, Jack. Bye. So, um, I've, I've been doing these videos on YouTube. If you want to know more about my diet, the, my results, all of that stuff, you can check out my YouTube channel. I put out pretty much a, a video a day that's almost like a mini podcast on ketogenics and just diet in general. And I've tried really hard not to turn the survival podcast into the keto hour, just like I tried it not to turn it into the permaculture podcast. Some of the things I got accused of doing over there, this is a permaculture podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. We talk about that and 80 million other things. Um, so even with this question, I'm probably going to do a show soon on ketogenics or at least low carb and maybe more from the standpoint of sustainable agriculture than anything else. I'm going to actually talk about that tomorrow on YouTube if you want to catch up with me on that topic. Um, but I don't even want to take this question here and, and take it toward you know, high-fat, low-carb eating. I want to just talk about everybody knows for a second. And I don't, this is going to be a short segment. Everybody knows is possibly the two most dangerous words in the English language. It might be the most dangerous phrase in the English language because of what it leads to and because it's based on a fundamental truth. There are things that everybody knows that we don't need to go further with. The people that say, well, the earth is flat. Okay, no, everybody knows you're an idiot. And I'm sorry, you are. And if you think the earth is flat, don't listen to my podcast. I can't help you. You are beyond help. Go get psychiatric help. Right. So there are things that everybody knows. We don't know what gravity is. I know that maybe you think everybody knows what gravity is. We don't know what gravity is. We, science cannot explain exactly what gravity is. But we do can say everybody knows gravity is a thing, and if you drop shit, it falls. Everybody knows that. So the fact that the concept itself does work makes it dangerous because it's based on a fundamental truth that turns into a lie. Because what everybody knows becomes is an excuse for absolute intellectual laziness. So in the case of a ketogenic diet, everybody knows you're supposed to eat fruits and grains. Well, see, that's, there's actually no science to back that claim up, especially the way that that message is given to the American people. And the science is clear that high dietary consumption of carbohydrates, specifically in the form of refined foods, is the cause of the epidemic of, of type 2 diabetes and heart disease in America today. That's what the science says. But the intellectual defense given by people that don't want to accept that is, but everybody knows. 
everybody knows grain is healthy. But see, everybody thinks. And when you think something but you believe that you know it, it's dangerous. And I don't care what it is. And I try to challenge myself all the time. There's some things I'm pretty convinced I'm right about. And I still let the self-doubt come in a little bit, you know, as long as it's not going to hold me back from going out and getting shit done, to go, are you right? Let's check this once in a while. Let's research this. Let's find out if there's any information that's conflicting with what you believe. And everybody knows is the perfect phrase to control a society. That's why it's dangerous. Because everybody knows that, well, the United States is the freest country in the world. Everybody knows that. Well, why don't we look at the freedom index of other nations and see if we really are? Everybody knows that it's all the other countries that are authoritarian regimes. Okay, then what's our prison population say about that? See, these are all things that result in immediate cognitive dissonance. I don't want to talk about that because I believe it's, 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 it, what is it? Mike Gazer, who's a pretty big guy in the world of finance and economics, uh, he was talking about one of the things that everybody knew in economics that wasn't true, and he called it a wonderful fiction. And most things that everybody knows in society today either are hardcore everybody does know because it is true, right? Everybody knows the sky looks blue most days. Okay, yeah, sure. Not everybody knows why the sky appears to be blue, but everybody knows that the sky is blue to the eye most days. Fine. And there's that, and then there's wonderful fictions. Everybody knows, you know, Everybody, but everybody knows that uh, we, we, we absolutely could run the entire planet on solar panels if we just wanted to. Everybody knows that. A lot of people actually know that's bullshit. We can't do it. It's not a thing. We're not there yet. But a lot of people consider that, and everybody knows. Everybody knows. And you put whatever you want. I don't even want to give any more examples. But whenever you're looking at something, and an alternative view is being put up, and the general, not even if it's the exact words, but the general response is some form of, well, everybody knows that's not true. You might want to look a little deeper. At least you find that you are nothing but a puppet with the hand of the state and the hand of industry up your ass, moving your mouth so it says, everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody knows. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Jacob here in Michigan. I know there's a lot of terms in the firearms community you can't disagree with, like battle rifle, but Grant Cunningham has a class of rifle he refers to as the perimeter defense rifle, kind of something for smaller to medium-sized homesteads, 10 to 20 to 50, 100 acres, something kind of equally suited for both home defense and dealing with predators, mostly four-legged, a little bit further out. Kind of curious what your thoughts are on it. Doing, you haven't done a gun build in a while. Curious what you would do for such a rifle. Thanks in advance. Well, I'll admit my first reaction here was to roll my eyes. Just when I thought I'd heard it all, we got another gun that we can sell. Well, it turns out this Grant Cunningham guy and I probably get along pretty good. Uh, he seems pretty much a realist. And when he says a perimeter defense rifle, he doesn't have any specific rifle in mind. I looked up his website, and it's Grant Cunningham. Again, when you're given names and stuff like this, if you really want a good answer, always try to maybe, you can even follow up with an email, maybe a link or something. But I was able to track this dude down. And uh, 
there's like you know a scout rifle or battle rifle. There, there's a lot. If you look that up. You see all these people. This is my battle rifle. This is my scout rifle, or whatever. And in the end, guns are freaking guns. Um, the concept here is that if this is a truck gun. But what he's this is what happens. You get into a space, and then like anybody that's in a space, you want to make some money. So then you need something to sell. So then you got to come up with concepts, and then because and I'm not putting this down. This is just how it works. You want to market something, so you need a name for it, and then that way you can sell a product or a course or a book or whatever. And so this Grant character, he does you know rifle and handgun. Training courses where you go out and you shoot. You 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 you. It's, it sounds like fun. It sounds like you know developing your skill sets and all, and that's great. So he came up with this concept of perimeter defense rifle. It's a skill, not as a thing, which I actually have a hell of a lot more respect for because it's a gun. All guns do this, and his 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 viewpoint is your skill set and how you use something is more important than the thing itself. Whether it's a lever gun or a, a, an AR-15 or a Mini 30, they, it, it, the way you use it is what's most important. And we can argue about this has this much distance and this has this much knockdown power all we want. We're back to what I've always said about shit like this: death does not come in degrees. You can say the 30/30 is underpowered, but it's put more deer in the deep freezer than any other cartridge on the planet. So maybe you need to relax. Um, so his view is that. When you have a, especially like a homestead or ranch, piece of property of any size, and you're doing what most people do with a piece of property like that is, which means you probably want to live there and be left alone. The more remote you are, the more likely it is that somebody might try to come steal from you or hurt you, and you might need to defend yourself. That's why we all believe in staying armed. But actually, a bigger problem would be that you have cattle and there's coyotes, or you have chickens and there's foxes. And that you may ha you you absolutely will be more likely to be out fixing a fence or something like that, and have a gun in the truck, and then see that there's a predator that needs to die than you are to have a gunfight like John Wayne. And that, but the skill sets are dramatically similar because the difference is only that when it's a person they might be shooting back at you. And it's really a great marketing ploy to market a course. Now, I think the core of the question is, what is that gun for me? Whatever you want. I know you want me to like come up with like the perfect Jack Spearco gun for this. Uh, I have a wonderful old-school Marlin lever-action gun that some members of this audience got me for my 10th anniversary. It's a great gun. .357 Magnum, standard barrel length, lightweight. Um, I'm probably going to put a rear aperture sight on that. Perfect. But what if the coyote's 200 yards away? Okay, then get yourself a low magnification scope on a flat top AR or a Ruger ranch rifle. It, 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 see, what are you comfortable with for this application? I don't want a $3,000 gun for a truck gun. I don't want a gun that I can't shoot over 100 yards with for a truck gun if I own property where I can see 100 yards and might need to shoot a coyote at 100 yards. And then what are you going to shoot? What is your what is your primary reason? If I am if I had a, a lot of money and I bought myself a nice South Texas ranch and I had about 1000 acres in South Texas and I was running around on four-wheelers and stuff like that 
And in addition to predators and, and defense, I might occasionally be like, gee, that's a good-looking deer. My freezer's kind of empty. I want that deer to die. You know, I'm probably more toward the 308. If I'm not going to be shooting a deer, I'm probably more toward the 223. I mean, and those are probably your two most universal rounds for this application. You know, you can look at niche things like the 300 blackout or whatever if you want to, but I mean, that's. See, when I, I go back on this, as much as I love guns. To, to the understanding that my grandfather had, and like all my great uncles and everybody they knew, they had a handgun. It was a centerfire handgun. Most of them had 45s. It's part of why I love them so much. 1911s. But they had a handgun. Some, some of them was a 38 Special or 357 Magnum or something like that revolver. But they had a handgun. It was for what handguns do. They had a 22 handgun because they liked to shoot, and the other ammunition was expensive. They had a 22 rifle because they like to shoot, and squirrels get exploded when you shoot them with a 306. They had a deer rifle that was anything between a 3030 and a 306. That was like 90% of the people that I knew in Pennsylvania hunted deer had a 3030, a 35 Remington, or a 3006, and if you were a young guy, you might have a 308. <laughs> right? Uh, and then a few people had 243s and stuff like that, but that was it. They had a, they had, regardless, they had a deer rifle. On that deer rifle, and probably on that 22 was a scope. It was a four-power scope on the 22. It was something between a four fixed to a three-by-nine on the deer rifle. They had a shotgun. And if they had gotten all that into their lives by the time they were in their early 20s, they were set, and most of them never bought another gun again for the rest of their lives. And if they had another gun, it would be, they really got into turkey hunting, so they got themselves a short barrel, kind of specialized, heavy choked shotgun, or they got themselves a longer barreled shotgun because they were big into waterfowl and goose hunting or something like that. And, and that was kind of it. And I don't want to, I don't want to be that limited. I like having guns, some that I don't even shoot that much, I just take them out and look at them. Right? And I like the fact that those will be handed down to heirs. I do. But in the end, I don't try to come up with an excuse to buy another gun. Or, more accurately, everything in my life, if I say, well, I, I, a toolbox fallacy, right? I need, I want this. Because I'm very careful about need. I want this. My first question, do I have something that does this? And if the answer is yes, then why don't you use that? And then if it's because I want something else, then my next question is, how bad do you want it? How bad do you really want it? And what will it really do for you? And what are you giving up by getting it? So when I start hearing these things like perimeter defense rifle and all, like I have like 10 of them upstairs in my closet right now. Which one do you want? Do you want the lever action 357 and lever action 44? You want one of my ARs? Right? You want one of my old SK and SKS? And SKS especially, I think it's Magtech or somebody makes a... Basically, it's like a rear aperture sight for like uh, an M1 style rear aperture sight that goes on and actually holds zero on an SKS. Well, Jack, I mean, it's an SK. They're not that accurate. It's accurate enough. It's minute of coyote. It shoots a 7.6239 AK round. It's an SKS. I throw it behind the seat of the truck. I don't care. It's okay. I'm not going to get upset. 
Now, if I'm driving around on a four-wheeler or a UTV with a boot and my gun's a little more protected, I might go a little nicer of a gun. That, that's how I come at this. I mean, it's just... Maybe it's just me, but I'm just trying to put more simplicity in my life at this point. Now, I will say this. I read the course, and I'm not big on a lot of people's courses. Um, I'm lucky to get away enough to shoot enough to make myself happy as it is. Uh, I didn't even get into deer woods this year, and I don't know that I'm going to. But it sounds fun as hell. I think it would be an enjoyable course, and I actually think it might be a lot, it might be a lot more practical for a lot of people than a, a, a typical tactical carbine course or something like that. Because the reality is, if you're shooting someone 100 yards away, you're probably not using it for self-defense. Do you understand what I'm saying there, right? If you're using a sniper rifle, it's probably not self-defense. The real world is not one made up of Red Dawn. Uh, let's take one more and wrap up. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. My question is, how can I use seaweed as a garden amendment or for composting? Background. I have access to the shoreline uh, within a tenth of a mile from my house, and there's lots of seaweed that I can uh, grab, and I'm trying to find out how I can use that as a soil amendment or as a use in a compost pile. Can it be dried? Check. Any ideas, comments would be helpful. Thanks for the show. Doing a great job. So here's the good news. This is really, really easy to do. Just do it, and you should. And um, people like me are spending money to buy kelp meal and liquid kelp products to do what you can do for free. I would be just a little bit careful about overdoing the quantity because you are going to bring some salt with the seaweed. You just are. And if you think about it, if it's really wet and it dries, the salt doesn't evaporate because we make salt by evaporating salt water. So um, some people would say, well, we may rinse it off. No, because it's all the minerals and shit that are on it that are part of what makes it so good. What I would just do is um, collect it, and then for direct application, I would dry it until it will crumble. And I would spread it as though it were a fertilizer, kind of about that volume, multiple times a season just in and around your plants would be one way to do it. Another way to do it is you then take that crumbled seaweed and use it as though it were kelp meal. And you simply would mix about two tablespoons uh, to a half gallon and use it as a foliar feed. And it's beautiful for that. For compost, I would use it at a ratio of maybe about 5% of the total volume of your compost. You're going to get a great um, hit of nutrient from that. Maybe even 10, 15%, but I wouldn't try to make it like 100% seaweed compost. And then you're going to treat it like a green or a brown based on how you use it. If you're going to use it wet, treat it as a green. If you dry it before it goes into your compost, treat it as a brown. You can even use it wet and dry in your compost as a green and a brown. Well, that's it. It's It's... It's something that a lot of coastal uh, indigenous cultures have always done because as soon as you try it, you figure out that it works really good. Uh, when you look at just about any seaweed that you can pick up off the coast, you're looking at about 60 micro and macro minerals uh, that that is applying to your garden in highly bioavailable form. So it's this is a Nike thing. And so I'm imagining what holds you back are two things. One, should I really do this? Yes, you should. And two, if I do this, is there a salt concern? 
And unless you're getting stupid with it, it's really not a big deal. Tons of people do it all the time, and it works great. But again, I mean, I would look at crumbled dry about the volume as if you were spreading a, I know you don't because you do organic, but if you were doing a conventional, you know, 510-5 fertilizer, the way you kind of sprinkle that around, about that much. If you're using wet, I wouldn't heavily mulch. If you just bring some home, I would just kind of strew it here and there in your garden and let nature take its course. And that's all there is. It's a simple one. And you should do that. And if I lived where you would, I would do that. And if I lived close to the coast, I would do that. And you should do that now. Go do it. All right. Anyway, guys, we have wrapped up another episode. I really enjoyed these calls today. I love the diversity. I hope that I'm giving you the diversity you're looking for in a podcast. If I am and you want to support me, you know how to do it. Join the Member Support Brigade. Um, the Member Support Brigade is really a great deal because here's what you're going to get. You're going to get every episode that I've ever done, over 2,000 episodes of the podcast available in zip files, all of them. You're going to get about $300 worth of eBooks the day you join for free. You're going to get some other resources that are public domain, but you probably won't find anywhere else if you didn't become a member. But the big thing is you're going to get like 80 different companies to give you discounts. And if you use one company once a month and get the discount they offer, you're going to get your money back plus some. And if you do the stuff we talk about, there's almost no world conceivable that you won't use the discounts unless you forget that you have them. I got discounts from GunAdapters.com that will turn your shotgun into a rifle instead of buying another gun. I got discounts if you use CBD. I got one discount alone that will pay for your membership probably in your first or second order of CBD oil. If you use CBD, I got a CBD coffee vendor. I just placed a, an order with him myself and got uh, a couple pounds of CBD coffee and some of his other coffee, and that saved me like 15 bucks just in using my own discount on one order. On a product you can get for $50 a year and support the show, which is $0.18 cents an episode. So if you got done with today's episode and thought, yeah, it's worth $0.20, cents, please consider joining. Next up, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to probably buy stuff online anyway. So why not shop through tspaz.com? If you do that, you help us no matter what you buy. My product of the day for you guys today is sumac. Yes, sumac. Very similar to the sumac you're thinking of if you live in the northeastern United States. And you see a plant that sort of looks like crepe myrtle, but more like a weed, and it grows these red little flowers on them. That's our native sumac. This is more a European, Middle Eastern sumac species, but they are similar, and they can be sort of kind of used interchangeably. Uh, but this is made by a company called Sadaf, S-A-D-A-F. And sumac is something that gets underutilized in, in, in the United States. And I'm going to tell you the biggest reason I think so. I grew up as a kid, and a lot of people that I grew up with say, don't touch that. And I'm talking about the American sumac and go, why not? Well, it's poison sumac. And fortunately, I had like family and friends and uncles that knew shit and knew that, it, no, that's not poison sumac. Poison sumac's white and it hangs down instead of red and sticks up. And in fact, well, you can make lemonade out of that stuff. And I have friends that thought I was going to die and I sit there and pull the sumac berries off and chew on them. And they're like, oh, it's okay. And I think because sumac in people's head is poison sumac, that like no one even thinks you would eat that stuff. It tastes kind of lemony. Even the uh, the European Middle Eastern all, you know, counterpart to ours, very kind of lemony. Uh, we used to refer to it as a pink lemonade tree, the, the the American version, and it has kind of a zesty, citrusy thing that's awesome. And it is really good on roasted vegetables. Any vegetable you roast, you sprinkle some of this and some salt and pepper, throw it in the oven and convection roast. It's amazing. Lots of other things you can do. It it, it just beautiful with fish. I mean, it just pair, I mean, citrus and fish, right? It just pairs with fish 
really, really great without, you know, if you use too much citrus on fish, the citrus actually cooks the fish. So if you want to get the citrus flavor, but you want to let the heat do the cooking, it's really great for that. And a big giant thing of it is like seven bucks. It, it belongs in your spice rack. It really does. And let me tell you something else about it. Because it's got so much uh, citric acid in it, basically, and it's not really, it's a different acid, but it's similar to citric acid, it stores forever. As long as you keep it clean and dry and covered so it doesn't dry out, I've never had it go bad. So it lasts like crazy. It's great for the pepper, pepper pantry. Check it out. Bring a little Middle Eastern flair to your cooking, whether it be Southern cooking, Yankee cooking, who knows what. Bring some Middle Eastern flair to it with Sadoff Sumac. You can find it at tspaz.com. You can find it at survivalpodcast.com. Remember, you can get all my updates if you subscribe to the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe. Fill out a form, name and email, and once a day you'll get an email with all my new stuff on it, like the knife that's being auctioned right now. Hey, i got to remind you about that, too. The, uh, the, the burn trout knives that... Uh, Patrick Rohrman is auctioning off to people who have been to a workshop. That's you have to be a workshop alumni. But it is getting serious. Uh, the maple burl handled one is now up to 500 bucks. JR of JR from the expert council is the leading bidder on that. Him and, uh, Connor have been going back and forth on that one. It's getting serious. We got another day going yet. And knife two, beautiful walnut handle. People don't seem to be as hard on it. Harry A is at 350 bucks. That may have changed while I'm doing the show, but that's there, too. You'd know all about this stuff if you use it on the Daily Mail. So get on the Daily Mail, and if you ask me if I sell your information, I'm just going to hit you in the face with a frozen trout. No, I don't sell your information. Good. 11 years. That's what I did. I worked for 11 years busting my ass so I could sell your information from my email list. Anyway, let's go talk about our song of the day real quick here. Song of the day today is by Ozzy Osbourne, Life Won't Wait. In other words, make the most of your dash. Instead of giving you a big, long lesson on this, I want to give you a real quick analogy and wrap up so we keep the show short like I promised. I used to make a joke a lot of times when I had to go to an airport back when I traveled all the time. Like, now I travel for leisure. I have plenty of time to get there. I have a drink before I leave the airport. I don't care if I'm there for an hour or extra. It doesn't matter. But when I used to travel for a business, and I was always at an airport every other week, I always really tried to make sure I was on time because I used to make a joke and say, you know what? I have a deal with the airlines. The person I've talked to, they've never heard the joke before. Be really? Yeah, we made a deal together. They said, well, what is it? I said, well, if, if, if the plane's supposed to leave and I'm not there, they leave without me. And you get a chuckle out of it. Humor and sales works really well. And uh, But it was, it was a joke, but it was also serious. Like, they don't hold the plane because Jack Spierko didn't show up. I'm, I don't rate that high with American Airlines. Even when I was a platinum, chair, platinum chairman member and all that. Like, you just... If he's not here, close the door, screw him, bye. He'll find another way to get there, and that's life. See, the thing is, the plane doesn't always live on time. It's like, you can be late and get lucky because your flight's delayed. It happens. But life is never delayed. Things in life are delayed, but life itself, it moves. Time ticks. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Life ticks for us all. With that... Ozzy Osbourne and Life Won't Wait. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast.